This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, please visit squarespace.com and enter offer code EXAMINED at checkout. A better web starts with your website. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 102 is something like, what is the relation of the individual to humanity? We'll be discussing works from Ralph Waldo Emerson, including a speech, The American Scholar from 1837, and the essays Self-Reliance and Circles, published in 1841. You can join the discussion, get links to the texts, and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, transcending myself to speak to you from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey, reliably in Middleton, Wisconsin. Let us read the ground rules for the first time since we hit episode 100. The uh, rules for our discussion include try not to assume our audience has read what we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy. Number two, don't make arguments that hinge on something other than what we've agreed to read. Uh, Don't say, you'd know what I'm talking about. If only you'd read The Transcendental Sandwich by Can't We Do It. Uh, the, the, the title was the joke, not the... Wait, I, I don't get it. The Transcendental Sandwich, that's all. It's just weird. Okay. That's the way it used to be. It doesn't have to be an actual joke. <laughs> 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 well, it's, it's better if it's not held to that standard, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, we will be rigorous and exact in all that we say, unless doing otherwise would be potentially more entertaining. And I believe that that latter part Emerson followed quite a lot <laughs> in being more entertaining as opposed to being rigorous and exact. Just to throw down the first little gauntlet there. <laughs> Shouldn't we start with the text, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> Some ways he's in, yeah, he's, he sounds as if he's an enemy of rigor and exactitude, at least in certain cases. But He's a preacher. But I'll say here, Mark, you you... I gather you, at a gut level, you're not into Emerson, right? It got better as I we approached the date, but certainly as I was attempting to read these texts a few weeks ago, yes, I could barely, I kept stopping. We had a longer list originally. One of our listeners had provided us a list based on some page count that I had given him a couple of years ago, actually. Well, his page count, his pages must have been huge because all these essays were way longer than I thought they were going to be. And they just seemed all of them to hit a wall after a certain point and keep repeating things over and over. Such was at least my impression when I started in on them. The ones that we finally settled on, I think, are deservedly more famous. They seemed to be pretty on point and cogent, at least rhetorically. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say, I've I've never heard you complain as much prior to recording as you did about this. (laughs) (laughs) Right. As I was trying to nail down what we were going to do, it was a little frustrating. So I'll say for me, I think it's a matter of temperament. So I might differ with you and Dylan. I mean, for me, it's like a heroin injection, basically reading Emerson. I mean, it is syntactically difficult. Like it's not something you're going to breeze through, right? But it can be, I enjoy that in the same way I enjoy it in Shakespeare, the sort of difficult meandering sentences, the use of metaphor. I just, you know, call me a rhetorician or a lover of rhetoric, maybe. 
Well, that was the key that maybe made me appreciate it a little more because I didn't find them syntactically difficult in the manner of Heidegger, where you have to slow down and kind of think about each word. If I did that, then I just, it got maddening. Like, oh, nothing is being said here. Oh, this is just saying exactly what was said in the previous sentence. Oh, this has, this sentence has no reason to be here either. But if I read it faster, if I did breeze through it, if I treated it like poetry, <laughs> uh, then actually I liked it a lot better. And I have heard it said that Emerson is generally better listened to than read. And I tried that just today with some of it. And there's something to that. It's obviously good to be able to stop and think about points. But in terms of just understanding the meaning from sentence to sentence and not getting lost in the fact that he's so just such a bag of wind, then uh, <laughs> that works pretty well. I found imagining him actually standing in front of an audience and speaking these, I know some of them were just essays, but American Scholar, for mm -hmm. instance, was a speech. I could imagine him riling people up. I think some of that's the context of the times. Well, also, I found myself having difficulty. So, for instance, reading a paragraph and really having difficulty knowing what he was saying without reading it a few times. And, and also, I found it to be chock full of interesting ideas. It's not, you know, these aren't ideas that are expounded on or spelled out in a rigorous analytical style. Well, let's get to it. So the first one is the American scholar, right? His most famous thing. Weren't you saying, Dylan, he was, he was excommunicated or something because of this? He gave this speech at Harvard, and then he was disinvited for the next 30 years. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he was never invited back. He never spoke again at Harvard. It caused a scandal. It's called the American scholar because that was the topic that he was more or less assigned. That was like a yearly lecture on the state of scholarship in America, right? Yeah. So his famous longer book, Nature, he was more or less asked to speak about that in giving this talk. So this is a distillation or some sort of variation off of his overall thesis that he'd been arguing for some time. Yeah. Anybody want to just give a summary? <laughs> well, Wes, since it's like giving heroin, why don't you just give us some of that juice, man? Yeah, I set myself up. I wonder in this essay what he means by scholar exactly. It seems to mean a lot of things. It seems to mean, you know, what we might typically think of as a scholar, but it might mean a writer or a poet. So it seems to be anyone devoted to letters and the contemplative life. Doesn't he put that category wants to call it man thinking, even though he doesn't think that that's what people usually mean by scholar? He wants to turn that into man thinking. Yeah, it's, it becomes, on the one hand, an account of what scholarship can be in its bad form, and then his setting up the ideal of what scholarship should be, which is sort of man returning to himself as really the whole species thinking about itself, as God reflecting upon itself. Right. He starts the essay anticipating a revival of letters as opposed to what he calls exertions of mechanical skill. So you get this idea that he's going to be lamenting to some extent the sort of American focus on practicality, you know, the pioneer spirit and all of that and call for mm -hmm. some sort of distinctively American form of letters. So, yeah, he starts out with this distinction between the scholar in the degenerate state as what he calls a mere thinker or a parator of ideas and the scholar in the right state as a man, you know, what you guys just noted, man thinking. And this, capital you know, he capitalizes M, capital both. E yeah. Even when talking, he capitalized them, apparently. <laughs> so man thinking as in humankind, or you get a little bit of intimation of a kind of a world spirit or something that's unified and general thing. So then he talks about influences on the scholar, nature, mind, or books and action. 
in the nature part of things, he's going to talk about this classifying, unifying instinct, which human beings have. And in the books part of it, or the mind part of it, he's predictably going to talk about the proper place of book learning in scholarship. I might recommend to people listening to this, if you didn't listen to our one on Schopenhauer just a few episodes back, there are many of the same ideas in here as there. And since we probably don't want to repeat all that discussion, folks might want to listen to that first as prep. Yes. Also, we'll get to some of the obvious influences on Nietzsche, but I thought a lot of truth and lie in the extra moral sense, and I'll call out places where I saw some of it. I thought, you know, wow, Nietzsche really lifted this. Or, yeah, you, you know. realize what is meant when Nietzsche says that he liked Emerson. <laughs> yes, yes. Even rhetorically, which we should talk about that, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just the style. It's incredible. And then the third party goes into action, and he calls upon the scholar to be a man of action. Emerson uses the word man a lot, by which I assume he means human being. We should put like an asterisk there about whether he means man or human being as an individual or human being as the one soul. Right. Good right. question. Sometimes he goes right. back and forth on those things. Right. And it's probably the answer is both. That's the kind of... <laughs> What I might think, you know, you could see it as artistry, as metaphor, or you could see it as sheer fuzzy thinking. He's not an analytical philosopher, Mark. Just get over it. (laughs) (laughs) He talks about the importance of action and being a scholar and in thinking. So he's going to talk about how ideas have their origins and sort of action. And there's this transition from unconscious to conscious and action is sort of the mediating factor there. Finally, he sort of sums up what he sees as, well, he does two things. He talks about the duties of the scholar as sort of being patient and isolated and self-trusting, not plugged into popular culture and yeah, self-trusting. And so we'll get, we'll get into more detail about that. And then he finally talks about different eras of scholarship, such as classical, romantic, reflective. And he's really going to want to think about the current era. So in some ways, it's a critique of, I guess, the American intellect. So here's one quote. The mind of this country, taught to aim at low objects, eats itself up. In the end, he's really calling for, quote unquote, for man to plant himself indomitably on his instincts. So there's this talk, and again, reminiscent of Nietzsche, of this return to instinct and the importance of that. The importance of that, but while always aiming high. So immediately there's this kind of tension of this radical individuality, but pointing towards something that is overarching and outside of yourself. And he even confronts this directly. I don't think it's in American Scholar. I think it's more in Self-Reliance. But um, it has that same kind of tension that's in Nietzsche. Yeah, and self-reliance, we'll get a lot more talk about instinct. And yeah, the tension is important. Yeah, this tension between the conceptual or the what's in Nietzsche's the Apollonian or the scientific and the instinctual or the intuitive and so on. He starts off this essay talking about, it is one of those fables which out of an unknown antiquity convey an unlooked for wisdom, that the gods in the beginning divided man into men, that he might be more helpful to himself, just as the hand was divided into fingers to better answer its end. The old fable covers a doctrine ever new and sublime, that there is one man, present to all particular men only partially, or through one faculty, and that you must take the whole society to find the whole man. Man is not a farmer or professor or engineer, but he is all. Now, the latter part of that gives a clarification to this doctrine that runs seemingly throughout all of his works of the oversoul, right? That underneath us... Somehow within our consciousness, we are all one. And this is the thing, this is what I was looking for an explanation of and why I was delving into so many of these essays, like there's one called The Oversoul, 
and not finding anything more satisfying than in the ones that we picked. So I don't feel like we're missing much. But the second paragraph again here in that it's not that you find the one man by delving into every single one of us individually. That's the oversoul idea. But he says here, you must take the whole society to find the whole man. We are not farmer, professor, engineer, but he is all. That sounds very much not mystical. That sounds like just a kind of a cool metaphor for the dehumanizing effect of the specialization of labor. Yeah, I think that's part of it. You can really bracket out the ontology, I think, and whether or not there's a world soul or something like that. And Uh the social side of it, for instance, yeah, this critique of routine and soullessness and commercialization. Well, and I think you can talk about what the features are, what the Oversoul is doing, and what his implicit claims are, what, ha- what work the individual soul has to be doing. Do a kind of phenomenology on what an individual soul and what the Oversoul is by reading just what he says about it. I mean, in this way, I agree, Mark, that he's he's not analytical about this, and he's not presenting an argument for it. He's really being like a preacher in this respect or presenting a worldview unapologetically and and maybe even creatively, but as a voice of truth. And he speaks of this later on as, in some ways, he's doing exactly what he says everyone must do, which is speak the truth, and that will be the truth. And everyone is plugged into that. It's sort of Socratic in that respect, right? That Yeah, that, it, was, the, that was the key <laughs> for me to sort of see a route to forgiving him Uh, that the way that we've read Plato in several of these dialogues is that Plato is not just laying out a metaphysics of the forms, but is doing this Socratic thing of debunking, uh, of uh, exploring, of using literary techniques. And that maybe that's just what Emerson is doing. Well, also we shouldn't, he doesn't spend a lot of time on these grand ontological claims in these essays and and he does call himself an experimenter at one point and yeah that's what yeah just take him take him so take him too seriously (laughs) but the you know the ontology it's not as if a hegelian ontology is completely absurd i think it's one interesting attempt to solve certain philosophical problems but it's not the substance it's not really what he's arguing about here well there's a hegelian part in the essay circles that we'll talk about later that i took as very much sort of about the phenomenology of the dialectic in other words what it's like to have ideas that constantly transcend other ideas whereas if you're trying to explain hegel's dialectic you would talk about it in a very different way but he doesn't use any words like that he's just purely talking about sort of the process of creativity the process of advancing of getting a, a new good idea that trumps other older ideas that you thought were good so in that sense is why I'm calling it phenomenology, but he certainly would never even use the word phenomenology, even if he's very familiar with it. When I was reading Emerson, and I had spent very little time with him, I remember reading Self-Reliance years and years and years ago, and just never really clicking with him. And I guess I worked on it a little bit more this time, but I always liked Thoreau better, and just even rhetorically liked him better. I can't stand Thoreau. Yeah, so... so <laughs> Okay. Next time. No, that's <laughs> it's interesting. It's yeah. Nice. But Emerson struck me as being in the middle of things all the time. And to the extent that he would point to larger philosophical ideas, it was not meant in any way even to be making an argument. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think even though he has a lot in common with the disposition of Nietzsche, he makes fewer arguments than Nietzsche does. 
But to me, the moment you learn that he was educated as a preacher, that's the rhetoric he uses. Not badly, but that's the way he speaks to me. Well, and you said this was a speech. I read that self-reliance, at least, I said it was published in 1841, but I read that it was used as parts of sermons as far as back as 11 years before, 1830. So I think all this stuff came out of sermons of one sort or another. At least I would not be surprised if all of it did. Yeah, and I mean that as a way of characterizing the kind of rhetoric and kind of writing he's doing. Which are usually to make you ponder one idea and just kind of circle around it. Yes, he's chewing on it. But he's not doing yeah. something like, you know, even though Plato is writing these dialogues and it's poetical, he doesn't have anything like the kind of back and forth argumentation that's even within a dialogue or within Aristotle or anything like that. It's not presenting arguments in the same way. Well, it seems to me like sermons are often constructed so you can kind of drift off and then you can come back and you can still understand what's going on. <laughs> like if it was a tightly told progression of arguments back and forth or something, then you might feel like, oh, no, I'm lost here. But if you're just kind of circling in different ways and around one central idea, it's like an extended meditation. That's what was so frustrating to me in reading some of these. I felt like, why is this still going on? Hasn't he already made his point yet? Well, yeah, he did make his point. But he's just adding little bits and other ways of phrasing it and other images and padding out the poetry and making it more cool. See, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that, but should we get back to the substance of it? I think we should have a discussion about, Mark, your claim is that it's utterly vacuous and completely repetitive what's added in terms of that mulling over and that going back and forth. And I agree that he goes over things and covers ground again. But to me, there's added value often in those retracings, and it's not as repetitive or vacuous in his repetitiveness. One would hope, yes. Again, the American scholar, I don't think, has this problem. That, I think, has a point all the way to the end. I just wanted to get back to the fable you were talking about, Mark, because um, yes. we sort of touched on, on that. So this idea that there's the one man, and there's in a sort of sentence reminiscent of Marx, really, the fable implies that the individual to possess himself must sometimes return from his own labor to embrace all the other laborers. But instead, you get this subdivision of society such that people walk about as if they're simply parts. So the next paragraph sort of gives you an example of that where, and this is sort of reminiscent of Sartre, but people inhabiting these roles. So instead of being the man, capital M, who is on the farm, he sinks into this role of being a farmer, and that is who he is. So that's some sense of, you know, you get submerged in these roles or parts, and so detached from your wholeness, let's say. In the paragraph right after that one, well, he says, the paragraph you referred to, man is thus metamorphosed into a thing, into many things. And he goes through talking about it, the specifics of that. In this distribution of functions, the scholar is the delegated intellect. In the right state, he is man-thinking. In the right. degenerate state, when the victim of society, he tends to become a mere thinker, or still worse, the parrot of other men's thinking. Right. So there's some idea that you sort of have to be a Renaissance man to be a scholar. You can't merely be a bookworm. You have to be also a, a man of action and someone interested in nature, directly interested, not just interested in books about nature and so on. And this points towards the many of the themes in self-reliance. Yeah, actually, I wanted to, I think we should, if there are points that come out of the other essays that apply directly to what we're talking about here, we might as well just bring them in rather than having to return to them as we treat the different essays. So 
in self-reliance pretty far into it, he gives a more extensive version of this, what you call the Sartrean thing, Wes, this bad faith. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a quote in there. He says, if I know your sect, I anticipate your argument. I hear a preacher announce for his text and topic the expediency of one of the institutions of his church. Do I not know beforehand that not possibly can he say a new and spontaneous word? Do I not know that with all this ostentation of examining the grounds of the institution, he will do no such thing? Do I not know that he has pledged to himself not to look but at one side, the permitted side, not as a man, but as a parish minister? He is a retained attorney, and these heirs of the bench are the emptiest affectation. Well, most men have bound their eyes with one or another handkerchief and attached themselves to one of these communities of opinion. All right. We identify too much. We internalize this, our role. That makes us predictable. That makes us into things. Exactly. Yep. You can see how inhabiting that kind of role, you know, would interfere with this connection to spontaneity and instinct, right? And it happens to everyone, I think, you know, even the people we think of as most connected to instinct, great artists, for instance, they spend a lot of their time in kind of ruts, you know, ruts of routine and have to break out of that. So I think a lot here, too, about truth and lie, just because of that dynamic interplay that Nietzsche ends with between the conceptual and the artistic or the metaphorical, where the conceptual can sort of become this constraining box that needs to be broken out of. Get some of that in Emerson as well. And it's not that you can do away with the conceptual and the analytical, because that interplay, you know, Nietzsche calls it a scaffolding, I think. You have to have that structure to break out of. It's not like you're just going to mm -hmm. get rid of all <laughs> discipline and start smearing pain everywhere, you know, in a haphazard way. You need both, but it's easy to sink down into something that is so divorced from instinct that it can't be original. It can't be original artistically, and it can't be original as far as thinking goes either. So the scholar who is doing, making clever arguments and very lawyerly, you know, we've seen a lot of that. We saw a lot of those grad students. It's very obviously divorced from passion. And I think that's what Emerson is objecting to. So then we get what you described as the main influences the scholar receives, right? Nature, past books, and action. So we, given that we did the Schopenhauer episode exactly on this, the point of the past books is pretty obvious. Don't let them dominate you. The books are supposed to inspire you, not smother you. You, you know, you don't just repeat parrot like the words of sages, that kind of stuff. He goes on and on about that. The interesting thing about the books is, you know, there's the a kind of anxiety of influence right there. You know, we, we've talked about this before. You need influences on the one hand, but on the other hand, you can simply become overwhelmed by influences. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, if you were to critique Emerson, I think you could say a lot about, well, Emerson seems awfully worried. He takes this idea of self-reliance and isolation to an extreme, and he seems awfully almost paranoid about influence. But anyway. Well, and especially when he, you know, had this robust education and he talks about reading in latin and greek and so forth so he clearly has a lot of influences himself and is trying to hold them as tools in his active soul but to what extent he's successful with that or not that would be also a thing to yeah how self-reliant he can be there's i think i didn't search completely through but this section might be where he first uses the phrase active soul in this essay. Oh, is it? Well, so he has this section, just a couple paragraphs into the section on, on thinking. He says, hence, instead of man thinking, we have the bookworm. Hence, the book-learned class who value books as such, not as related to nature and the human constitution, but as making a sort of third estate with the world and soul. Yeah. Hence, the restorers of readings that 
amendators and the bibliomaniacs <laughs> of all degrees. I love that. So word, I mean, remember, he's giving this, he's giving this lecture at Harvard, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, he's got some, uh, cojones. cojones. So, yeah. Books are the best things well used, abused among the worst. Yeah. What is the right use? What is the one end which all means go to effect? They are for nothing but to inspire. I yeah. had better never see a book than to be warped by its attraction, clean out of my own orbit, and made a satellite instead of a system. The one thing in the world of value is the active soul. This every man is entitled to, this every man contains within him, although in almost all men obstructed and is yet unborn. The soul active sees absolute truth and utters truth or creates. In this action, it is genius. Yeah. Yeah, so this is exactly what we talked about with Schopenhauer. I don't, so to be... I'm not saying he's derivative of Schopenhauer. No, I mean, saying, it's not a... This is about the same historical period. These were ideas, the post-romantic era. Well, I don't think... I mean, I think it's probably the sorts of things that have occurred to all of us, though, and, you know, anyone who's done their share of book learning. You know, so he says, for instance, near the end of this part of the essay, a thing that just sounds exactly like something Nietzsche would say. One must be an inventor to read well. And of course, we see the same themes in Plato as well. You know, the symposium starts with a quip about if only knowledge were something that could be poured into you. And of course, that's something that people talk a lot today as if that were actually the case, as if, you know, education involved the imparting of information and it was simply a transfer. So the difference is, you know, instead of receiving information or something that's this sort of static wealth that's being transferred from one person to another, Something much more subtle is going on, which is that you, if you're reading actively, you're sort of in a sympathetic harmony with what you're reading, and it's producing this activity within you. It's not that you're, something is being poured into you, it's that you're being inspired, basically, to think certain things or so on. And that's incomplete without your soul doing its own action. It becomes an ingredient into the creative activity that you're doing later. He says in this section also, books are for the scholar's idle times. Books are the things that you're doing when you're not doing the main activity. They're a last resort. So basically, when you resort, run out yeah. of inspiration, yep. occasionally I'm helping people with master's theses and dissertations up here. And so the first thing I always tell people is just basically, you're done reading. You're not going to read anymore. Don't read. Yep. Stop reading and start writing. And even if you think you've read nothing and you don't have uh, enough to go with, then you have to treat this like an exam where you're, you've been locked in a room and we're going to figure out what you know. And it's going to be a lot more probably than you think. So getting people out of that passive mode and, and into the active mode, and it's difficult. There are lots of obviously psychological barriers to that. So it's much easier simply to read and collect and be passive. Writing is way harder than reading. Yeah. He does say at some point, I'm not trying to tell you not to read. Right. Books can be the greatest thing. Right. But okay. Can be misused. Let's contrast with this parrot learning what he actually recommends, nature itself and action. The first in time and the first in importance of the influence upon the mind is that of nature. Every day, the sun and after sunset, night in her stars. Ever the winds blow, ever the grass grows. Every day, men and women conversing, beholding and beholden. The scholar is he of all men whom this spectacle most engages. And then goes on from there. And that's an interesting setup, right? Because you would think, you would say, well, the poet, because of the way he's framing it, is the one that that would most engage. Right. There are places in Emerson where he sounds like Schopenhauer. 
things people worry about all the time are just stupid and you should be more spiritual and individual and focus on your, your own mojo. Like that's definitely something out of Emerson. But right here, you say, you know, just looking at people and looking at the things all around you, everything is in fact absorbing and inspirational. And the way it is, then he goes on to say, as somebody said earlier here, was that nature, what is nature to him? By and by, the mind finds out how to join two things and see them in one nature, then three, then 3,000. And so tyrannized over by its own unifying instincts, it goes on tying things together, diminishing anomalies, discovering roots running underground, etc. So in other words, the act of science is the act of seeing commonalities in things. Maybe not just science, but metaphor. If the, ultimately you could see this as another way of him presenting his, oh, you're ultimately recognizing that everything is one, that there's an oversoul, blah, blah, blah. But that's his simple version of Kant's faculty of reason. The thing that our mind just leaps to do is to try to make generalizations, to come up with general laws about things. Well, that's one of the ways the active soul engages any little thing you would see around us. Right. And that's his setup for his conclusion that the laws of nature just are the laws of the mind. Something that, of course, it sounds very Kantian. The ambitious soul sits down before each refractory fact. It's a quest for understanding in which there is a one that brings everything together. So there's, again, this sort of tension between individuality, both in the soul and the individual things in the world, and the overall oneness that he's pointing to, both in soul as well as the world. Yeah. And I was going to point out this word refractory fact, you know, you get the sense that these facts are actually resistant to categorization in some way, right? I guess resistant in their individuality and their diversity, whatever you want to say. And so it's not just that the world automatically lends itself to our categorizing instinct. It resists it. And there's a lot of force of will that goes into that activity. Maybe it's this tension that made this section strike me wrong the first time that he wants to say that the concrete is inspirational of the abstract and science is this move to the abstract. I guess our normal paradigm of thinking about this distinction is on the one hand, the scientific analytic breaking things down and sort of getting lost in the minute, which is one way of really engaging the concrete and that it's actually the opposite thing to pull back and come up with generalizations, especially lazy and ultimate generalizations, like everything is one. So the scientific and the mystical seem to me, the way we always think of it, entirely opposite. But that's not the way he's casting it here. He's saying that ultimately these things are the same, that if you follow the scientific procedure to its natural endpoint, then you would get to generalizations about everything, which amounts to him as saying everything is one. Where do you get that? Which I don't like that very much. <laughs> the chemist finds proportions in an intelligible method throughout matter. And science is nothing but the finding of analogy identity in the most remote parts. And there's a section of, I think it's self-reliance, or maybe it's circles, where it's a metaphysical point, but it's one that he just really doesn't worry about. And I agree with Wes that you can basically just bracket it because whether it's dissatisfying or not, he just doesn't really worry about it. The possibility of having reason is that there is a fulcrum around which you can turn and you can put things in relationship to one another. And there is 
just this tension with the progressive uniqueness of things. And what it means to sort that out is that you assume that things are related to one another, that there is a one thing that they're related to one another. And he, in his flourishes, points to this one soul and this one world. But he's coming at it from the particulars and going towards the one rather than starting from the one and working down. So it's there, it gives direction, but he's not making any derivation whatsoever from there being a one thing and going down to many. He's not worried about that at all. Well, in terms of not worrying, yes, in these essays, though, they all in different ways rely on this oneness. Yep. And yet don't treat it as the central subject matter. Nope. Yet two of the other essays that I looked at were the Oversoul, hoping to get an actual explanation of this, and one called The Transcendentalist, which the whole idea of transcendentalism itself is transcending the individual to get to this Oversoul in some way, you know, whether through individual mystical experience or just the way that you then live in light of the recognition that all is one. For something he's not concerned with, he sure does talk about it a lot, and it sure does serve as the central premise I don't know if I completely understand enough to say whether I agree with you or not that nothing is derived from the idea you were just saying of the one that these are all observations about life, really. It's not that he's saying, you know, in a very analytic way, all things are one and what follows from that. It's all that he uses this metaphor of the one or something as a guiding thread through all of his discussion of all these different phenomena. The point of the ontology doesn't, you know, you could write a paper on the ontological implications or, but he's not writing about the ontology. You know, when he talks about man thinking, for instance, there are practical implications to that, regardless of the philosophical stuff surrounding world spirit or whatever. It's about the idea of someone thinking in a way such that their reflections and their thoughts have something to do with themselves qua human being or so, for instance, you know, in self-reliance, he's talking about someone cooped up in their study who is going to have ideas that a radically different kind of person can relate to because, you know, they're not local. Mm -hmm. They're not parochial ideas. It's a kind of thinking that applies to humanity in general. And I think so that's what he's getting at. And that's the important point, I think, regardless of whether or not you want to say something about ontology or whether it's grounded in ontology. Yeah, and that's an example of something that would be derived from the notion of this one oversoul, this one transcendent existence, is that we're all related to one another and things that one person thinks of are accessible to another person because of this intrinsic relatedness of everything. You don't have to think of this as, okay, there's one sort of amoeba that we're all part of. You could just say, well, human beings have these very basic commonalities. You could make the claim there's a human nature and this is what it is. And so you can think about that oneness in whatever way you want. There are uncontroversial ways of rendering oneness, you know, and it's there are obvious ways in which there must be oneness to the many. When you're making assertions, predicating things of things, you know, then you're asserting oneness. So, yeah, let me just make that one formulation and then I'll be satisfied and move on from this, that there's a difference between type oneness and token oneness. <laughs> that is, yeah, the amoeba is the, token, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Are we all literally the same oversoul when we sink down? He talks like that sometime, you know, the same creature peering out from within our eyes. But same in that sense could mean the same exact one or it could just mean of the same type. So most of this, I think you can interpret in terms of type identity, at the very least humanity. Maybe not all of nature, but at the very least the humanity, you know, we've got a common human nature. 
maybe you could take a Jungian leap and say we have specific archetypal things or say that there's a geist of even just America. There are many different ways you can talk about the commonalities that we have. And in that sense, yeah, the relatedness, that's what phenomenology is all about, is you are an artist, you are a particularly insightful thinker, a noticer, a comedian, <laughs> even, and you notice something uh, and they thought you haven't noticed that. And then somebody else said, oh, yes, you've phrased exactly what, because we have this, because we're underlyingly one. Well, nobody's going to think that's a token underlying oneness. That's simply type. That's fine. So besides wanting to understand more clearly what Emerson means by this and having some open questions, what does that answer it doesn't. It, to you for other things in Emerson about his other claims? It doesn't. He's a he's social speaking. thinker. This is social thought. He's not, this is an ontology. I wasn't asking you, Wes. I know, but I'm. <laughs> You're not the one complaining about <laughs> I'm hoping to get us beyond this. <laughs> I'm just curious because I'm, I'm wondering if Mark's question is one of a kind of analytical frustration that this seems like an interesting idea. I want to hear more about it. Or if he feels like there's things that he is not understanding that turn on what Emerson would mean by these things. Yes, the latter. So that's actually the more interesting case. Is there an example so far of that? It's most clear in self-reliance, but we already get the central idea of self-reliance, the trusting yourself, even this section on books that we've already talked about. So if you say that you shouldn't follow past history and parrot things other people have said, you should follow your own heart and it will resonate with other people. What is the grounds? Yes, I can agree with that as an observation. That It seems like good art does resonate. Now, I would have to say it only resonates with people of the same cultural background as you for the most part. You know, maybe that's a, an objection that cuts against, you know, the way he's specifically arguing about this, because I take him really to be making the strong case that it's not just that there are certain commonalities we have. If you take all this as type type identity, then you have the different layers of unity of common nature that I was describing before. That is, we have some things that are all of human nature. We have some things that are just maybe the national geist. We have some things that, you know, anybody who watched a particular sitcom when they're, you know, has these things haunting them and this particular piece of art then will have a, you know, will strike him and says, that's exactly expressing some thing that I thought. Every piece of humor only works observational humor to somebody who is had that observation, who has been in the position to make that Are you observation. About circles, so they're not all circles, Mark. I wasn't actually trying to talk <laughs> about know. circles at all. I, <laughs> I take Emerson to be really arguing that genius, that great art, that original thought is not just culturally specific, but that it is universal and it is universal because there is actually this token identification that you know, you, maybe you could explain it in different ways. You, maybe you could explain it that it's, uh, you know, all of human nature in the genome. And so ultimately all of nature has one physical source. It's not that there's an underlying God that is connecting everything, but even just the physical, you know, mother nature that's behind everything and the fact that we all have teleology. But it can be universal without the token commonality, right? We just all, we all have common human traits no matter how culturally different we are someone could just claim that and there are certain things yeah. our brain is structured you know you could be a total cognitive scientist about it and i'm sure there are cognitive scientists doing work on this right now you know why do certain things seem to appeal universally to all human beings and regardless of okay culture but that's and, human that's human beings 
There's a difference between all human beings are one and all is one, right? If you're going to say we are at one with nature and go off on crazy ass stuff like that, then you have to have a, a stronger notion of this identity than just what you're talking about. Well, I think part of the one with nature thing, I mean, again, there are uncontroversial interpretations to that. We could give a long explication in terms of evolution producing certain adaptive faculties. I think a lot of his idea is that our way of perceiving and connecting to the world to nature comes out of nature. And there's something really important about there's a oneness to that. You can object to the metaphorical looseness of that, and you can say if it's taken to a certain extreme, it becomes absurd. But I think there's always some less controversial way of fleshing it out. Another picture that he weaves together with this that we've referred to, you know, as being parallel with Kant is idealism, that this idea that nature is going to display unity because the human mind displays a unity. And he says that in several different ways in this section, right? That when we're uh, going back to the near the beginning of that section one, that the scholar is he of all men whom uh, the spectacle of, of nature most engages, he must settle its value in his mind. What is nature to him? There is never a beginning, never an end, the inexplicable continuity of this web of God, but always circular power returning into itself. Therein it resembles his own spirit, whose beginning, whose ending he can never find. So entire, so boundless. I think he very intentionally sees the idea of the phenomenal world, right? We could put this in a fancy Kantian way and say, the phenomenal world is the way it is because of the structure of the human mind. But then that raises, of course, the Kantian question of, well, what's behind the phenomenal world? How is the phenomenal world generated? All these things that Emerson doesn't care about. Instead, if you're going to start talking about God in this respect and saying something like the unity of nature is the inexplicable continuity of this web of God, which again, maybe you could interpret that as just being flowery, metaphorical, God created, you know, an orderly world. But I, I'm reading this literally, that it is the God stuff okay. that we are encountering when we look at nature. So very, And then very we look Spinozan. inside ourselves, right, and we look inside ourselves and we see God stuff as well. So it's making a very Spinozan, which is pre-Kantian, that is straight up metaphysical claim and conflating that with a Kantian picture, which is very anti-metaphysical, right? In a Kantian picture, you can't actually say what the world in itself outside of our perception is like. Well, except that he's also borrowing from Hegel. And in a way, Hegel is sort of uniting those views. He's making the Kantian and the Spinozan kind of work together in a way. I just see no evidence that he's aware of any of those subtleties. What is he not? He was clearly aware of, you know, he was clearly reading some of this stuff. Either he's aware of it and he's putting this all together, but he's not making any attribution at all, or he's not really worried about it. He's a man of letters. He's writing an essay. No good essayist would try and turn this into an academic paper. That's not his goal. We can't hold him to something which is just not the function of an essay. When I write essays, I don't hold myself to that academic standard either, and it would never do, but I would certainly would feel free to borrow from these ideas if I thought they were interesting. And one can always go and argue about Spinoza and Hegel and Kahn and whether they were right. Really, he's interested in social phenomena, and I think he thinks those ideas illuminate those social phenomena. And yeah, they're not undebatable, but whatever we think about Hegel or Kant, we could still think that their ideas are illuminative, you know, in an, in an essay that's concentrated on social phenomena. They could be all wrong and still be highly illuminating. Shall we move to point three, the third influence on the American scholar, which is action. The so-called practical men sneer at speculative men as if, because they speculate or see, they could do nothing. I have heard it said that the clergy, who are always more universally than any other class the scholars of their day, are dressed as women, 
that the rough, spontaneous conversation of men they do not hear, but only a mincing and deluded speech. Okay, forgetting, uh, just keeping in mind when this was written. So he's giving this version of the scholar as really just studying and doing nothing. But he says, hey, uh, whilst the world hangs before the eye as a cloud of beauty, we cannot even see its beauty. Inaction is cowardice, but there can be no scholar without the heroic mind. So that the weak, inactive scholar is the wrong kind. You could see where Thoreau or somebody would be highly influenced by this, that you can't just talk about moral theories. You have to act on your convictions. See, I don't see it as saying we have to act on our convictions necessarily. It seems like in this case, action is for the sake of thinking. So we had a similar sort of thing with Nietzsche where he talks about living dangerously. And I think a lot of people think that Nietzsche is concerned about men of action. or But I think actually he's thinking about thinkers. Right. Well, men of creation. Yeah. Right? right. So it's not just that you are, again, you're not just reading, you're writing your own masterwork or something. That is action. Neither Nietzsche nor Emerson is saying one ought to go out and become a soldier or a banker or whatever you think of as being in the real world or something involving action. You're not involved in action for the sake of action. It's not like I'm an adrenaline junkie and I'm going out bungee jumping or anything like that. Action is actually subordinate to the speculative life. It's for the sake of it. You can't be a scholar without action, because action sort of forms this bridge between the unconscious and the conscious. It's the preamble of thought. Why don't we read a quote about that? So action is with the scholar subordinate, but it is essential. So he makes that point directly. The preamble of thought, the transition through which it passes from the unconscious to the conscious is action. Uh, Only so much do I know as I have lived. So the world is a source of inspiration for the poet, the thinker, artist, scientist, whatever you. We've got to be in the world in some sense. There's a paragraph that starts... If it were only for vocabulary, the scholar would be covetous of action. Life is our dictionary. Life lies behind us as the quarry from whence we get tiles and copstones for the masonry of today. This is the way to learn grammar. Colleges and books only copy the language from which the field and the workyard made. But the final value of action, like that of books, and better than books, is that it is a resource. The great principle of undulation in nature that shows itself in the inspiring and expiring of the breath, in desire and satiety, in the ebb and flow of the sea, in day and night, in heat and cold, and is yet more deeply ingrained in every atom and every fluid, is known to us in the name polarity, that these fits of easy transmission and reflection, as Newton called them, are the law of nature because they are the law of spirit. So that lost me in the middle of that here. Well, what I think what's going on there is that he's, at that point, he's making this link between the activity of a man along the lines of what Wes was talking about, that is part of the thinking man. And that is the activity, the action of them in proper thinking involves activity within the world and the activity of the world itself. The ebb and flow or the undulation he's talking about is between action and thinking. And he starts the next paragraph with that, and that the mind now thinks, now acts. Now so that's acts. this. Yep. That's what that whole metaphor is getting at, this yep. back and forth between the two. They need each other. They thrive off each other. That's why it's a resource. I mean, he starts off the paragraph right. that action is a resource, and in the paragraph after you just read, the mind now thinks, now acts, and each fit reproduces the other. When the artist has exhausted his materials, when the fancy no longer paints, when the thoughts are no longer apprehended and books are a weariness, he has always the resource to live. Character is higher than intellect. Thinking is the function. Living is the functionary. 
Yeah, so that's interesting. Character is higher than intellect. What does he mean by that? Well, I think this goes to the action business that the thinking mere intellect would be like the bookworm and character is the action part of that. And so the action is greater than the intellect, the whole person as an active being. Right. I think whenever someone uses the word character, we should think about Aristotle and people who are interested in psychoanalysis, they should think about that. The idea of these sort of what Aristotle called hexae or traits. So there's a human nature and let's say an Embersonian nature. There are certain qualities particular to, to Emerson that lead to certain types of activities. Hopefully his character is good, virtuous activities. So there's a strong relationship traditionally between character and action. Okay, before we go on, I want to stop for a second. Dylan, why don't you tell us about our sponsor today? Well, sure, Mark. Our sponsor is Squarespace, an all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website. You can do a portfolio or online store. Now, we don't use that, right, Dylan? No, actually, we've done ours from the ground up, but I'll tell you that Squarespace is designed to make making a website really easy for you. And I'll tell you from my own experience that building it from the ground up is not easy. If you are looking for a quick way to get on the web with your company or build a portfolio for your artwork or sell some things in an online store that's slick and easy to use and looks great, Squarespace is the place to go. How much do the plans cost? They're about $8 a month and they include free domain name if you sign up for a year. You can have an online store that's fully integrated as part of Squarespace. Every site comes with that. One of the really nice things, it has a drag and drop feature when you're building your site. So you can add content just like you do it on your desktop. Even though it's really easy to use when I was testing it out, if you run into problems, they have 24-7 support through live chat and email. And they have two locations, in fact. Can you guess where they are? One of them is New York. And what is the other one? Zanzibar. Well, it, it could be. Kankakee. Somewhere... No. I mean, I feel like it's just staring me in the face on a set of talking points. <laughs> Could it be Dublin? <laughs> yes, you can get 24-7 support through either New York City or Dublin. So you'll get either an American accent or an Irish accent, I suppose. Very nice. So you should start a trial today. You don't need a credit card at all to start building your website. And you can sign up at squarespace.com. Don't forget to use the offer code EXAMINED to get your 10% off. We'd like to thank Squarespace for supporting Partial Examined Life. All right. Thanks, Dylan. Let's get back to it. In self-reliance, he has a different, he has a more extended discussion of character that emphasizes some different points. Character teaches above our wills. Men imagine that they communicate their virtue or vice only by overt actions. Do not see that virtue or vice emit a breath every moment. The force of character is cumulative. All the foregone days of virtue work their health into this. What makes the majesty of the heroes of the Senate in the field which so fills the imagination? The consciousness of a train of great days and victories behind. They shed a united light on the advancing actor, etc. Anyway, we can talk about the context of that later in terms of being a consistent person. But here, it's it's interesting just that right, if we say character is above intellect... I'm not completely sure how to fit these two things together. I mean, they're coming from different stories. In the American scholars, character is higher than intellect. So what does that mean exactly? 
It means that in self-reliance, the part you just quoted, we got this idea that, you know, no matter what people will, they're, they're habituated to behaving in certain kinds of ways unconsciously, and they're just going to do that no matter what their conscious intentions. That's character. Mm. Okay. So as Dylan was explaining, character is being higher than intellect as a way of saying action is higher than intellect because actions issue out of character. Right. So it's just that the emphasis in the other essay is that it's not a matter of action, that even if you don't really do anything... You know, I know your character just by talking to you for a second, and the character is the most important thing, and sort of being true to yourself and all that, as you say, is not a matter of acting on your convictions or going to war if you think you should go to war or anything like that. It's a matter of being who you are. The relation of that to action is complicated. I mean, when he says action, I think he's not talking about, and maybe I could be wrong about this, but I don't think he's talking about agency or what we think of as something issuing from free will. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just not. anything we're doing. And most of what we're doing is not issuing from decisions or something, you know, we've thought through most of it is unconscious or it's just issuing from the way we are structured as individuals from our character. And so you, you know, that idea about knowing someone's character instantly, what even the smallest little bits of body language, movements, facial expressions, all, all those sorts of things. Yes. Virtue or vice emit a breath every moment. Yeah. I mean, in that section that I read where he points to a lot of natural phenomena, I take him to be linking the action of men in our character with the kind of activity of the world. Well, it makes me think of the kind of figuring out and the role of learning about nature that he refers to earlier in the essay, that there's an activity of the intellect that's learning about the natural world but that's also learning about ourselves. And so our activity in action is also an activity within nature. Hmm. Yes. And that part that you read made me think a lot about Schopenhauer's view, that everything else in this section makes it sound like, just like the first influence should inspire us, well, action should inspire us as well, just because we'll go and see more of the world if we do things. Yeah. It's not just looking at things, it's actually entering into active relations with them that yields this experience that the scholar needs as his raw materials. But the final value of action, like that of books, and better than books, is that as a resource. That great principle of undulation in nature that shows itself in the inspiring and expiring of the breath, in desire and satiety. So that was the thing. Desire, you know, that sounds very much like Schopenhauer or Nietzsche, that the ebb and flow of things is between going out and acting. And again, this is sort of out of your character, out of your nature, out of your telos. And then you get what you want, and then you can rest a little and think about it and sort of digest that action and turn it into thought. Sure. Yeah. There's a time for acting and there's a time for thinking. <laughs> well, and the obvious difference between Schopenhauer and Emerson here is that endless cycle of desire and satiety is bad for Schopenhauer. Now, we know Nietzsche saw that same thing and said, no, no, that's what life's all about is having the desire and then feeling it satisfied. And that's awesome. But adding this point here of, well, it's through the desire that brings action and then not having to take the action anymore because you get it what you want, that then yields thought as this flower as a way of transcending. That little addition seems pretty darn foreign to Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, this almost rationalist, the fact that knowledge, that insight comes out of this is just awesome. Emerson just seems much less misanthropic than Schopenhauer to me, and much less concerned with Dionysian joy than Nietzsche. What are you saying then, Mark? I'm not sure what you're saying exactly. The now, Maybe I'm just misreading this section, because again, the rest of it is the great principle of undulation in nature 
in desire and satiety, in the ebb and flow of the sea, in day right. and night, in heat and cold. In other words, in those things, yeah, that really is just talking about a pattern of this happens and then this happens. It's circles. It's again, saying things acting according to their telos. But I was reading into that, you know, the joy out of this as from the previous sections here, that at least in the case of us, Though the sea doesn't get any grand insight out of its ebbing and flowing, we, as scholars at least, as man, capital M, because we are rational and have this insight into the universal that the sea and day and night and heat and cold presumably don't at any level have, then we have this extra treat out of, the, <laughs> out of this cycle that might seem pointless and awful. We get to learn from our experiences isn't part of this a kind of straight up Puritan virtue of work too? Yeah. I mean, we see that in this essay. Yeah. yeah. At the end of this section, there's a break where he moves out of the one, two, three, and he moves on to another section of it. Yeah. Part the, of which the is the duties, self-trust. The duty section. He says, I hear therefore with joy, whatever is beginning to be said of the dignity and necessity of labor to every citizen. There is virtue yet in the hoe and the spade for the learned as well as the unlearned hands, and labor is everywhere welcome. Always we are invited to work, only be this limitation observed, that a man shall not for the sake of wider activity sacrifice any opinion to the popular judgments and modes of action. I didn't completely understand what he meant in that last little bit there. But here, action is now in part straight up labor, as opposed to this more uh, abstract kind of action we were discussing. Well, it's hard to not read this whole section and really all of Emerson that we read from a labor slash new work slash Marxist lens, you know, when he brings this kind of stuff up. And since his whole emphasis in self-reliance and then to a lesser extent, the other ones is on growing individuals, on making us not conformists, on making us act out of an authentic place and doing that in a way that is creative, that the way to grow yourself is to be authentically creative and not parrot things. I'm trying to square that with what he's saying about labor here. You can think about some versions of, oh, gosh, you know, what a wonderful day I just had planting the hoe and feeling myself interact with the earth and planting that, you know, you could get you could have a very spiritual farming relationship. But when he talks about anything like this in the self-reliance essay, it's uh, everybody is, you know, just like at the beginning of this essay, if you are split into farmer and you're only concerned about your crops and getting the immediate thing done, then you're not being a full human. Right. It's only sort of as if you are an existential farmer and think about yourself as I am man interacting with the land and bringing forth fruits. Then you can actually be a a cool farmer. You shouldn't stop farming, but maybe nobody should be simply a farmer. And if you are a farmer all the time for 14 hours a day and break your spirit with that, you're not going to be in that kind of good headspace that, uh, you know, maybe being a weekend farmer or something, it would be better for your spirit. If you're thinking like Thoreau, enjoying the land as a conscious retreat and going out and contemplating things is much different than having to live off the land because you're very poor. Yeah. Necessity is bad. Emerson obviously has a lot to contribute to that idea of the dignity of meaningful work, but I don't feel like he's has cleared up the problems involved. Yeah. I don't think he really tells us whether or not... The farmer has to be reflective. I mean, he's he's talking about the scholar here, and so he is talking about action and the active life in a way that's subordinate to that. But I, 
right active by the scholar. I kind of doubt he sees that as a as a life for everyone. I, I I don't know if he's really saying that everyone has to be a partially a scholar or reflective. I mean, I I think he would say they you know they have to be reflective to the extent they're going to be nonconformist and self reliant and exhibit certain other virtues. But I don't know that that means one has to be a scholar. Toward the end of the American Scholar essay, we're talking about, he's talked about self-trust. He says, uh, but man has been wronged. He has wronged himself. This is extending the metaphor from the beginning and creating the division of labor in this way and making scholars into these ineffectual do-nothings and businessmen and farmers and everybody as focused solely on the immediate goals of their trade. We have degraded humanity. Really, all men have to become more self-consciously man. He has almost lost the light that can lead him back to his prerogatives. Men are become of no account. Men in history, men in the world of today are bugs, are spawn, and are called the mass, the herd. In a millennium, one or two men, that is to say, one or two approximations to the right state of every man. So this whole thing is definitely a diagnosis and a pretty bleak one on the state of man in society. Only in that one section do we get the idea that going back to nature is the way to reconnect with your humanity. But certainly Emerson makes it very explicit that living the life of an engaged tradesman or a farmer pushed by necessity into just got to get the crops in, got to whatever, that these are not good ways to live. That is yeah. what makes us into the mass, the herd, the spawn. Right, but he talks of a revolution in the in the next paragraph. The revolution is to be wrought by the gradual domestication of the idea of culture. I had a hard time with that. What does that mean exactly? I think it means the domestication of the idea of culture means focusing on private life rather than... So he says later, the private life of one man shall be a more illustrious monarchy. So instead of culture merely being about being a great soldier or I think even a great artist, it's something about the way one lives one's life generally. You domesticate it in the sense of it becomes about the average domestic life and not one's functions as a public personage or something like that. Or could it mean that culture, and this again, culture is capitalized here, that we might see culture as high culture, yeah. as just something that you might learn about in a university or listen exactly. to rich people could listen to classical music or something, but the domestication means it comes in everybody's home. So everybody becomes more creative. Everybody becomes more reflective. The sentence in between those two things you read is, the main enterprise of the world for splendor, for extent, is the upbuilding of a man. I mean, we, we can also read domestication just as taming the idea, which I, I, I guess it sort of lends itself to similar thoughts. If only we could blame this on a bad translation, but it's, it was written in English. So, I don't, yeah, I don't know what to think of that, because taming, which is what that word suggests to me, doesn't sound right here at all. Like, why would you want to tame culture? Wouldn't you want people to be more creative and wild and individual and awesome? Not. I'm thinking that it's the effect of culture on people. Throughout this, culture is a kind of boogeyman. It's a throttle on the activity of individual souls. And it is oppressive. I think this sentence is the, is the key. The private life of one man shall be a more illustrious monarchy, more formidable to its enemy, more sweet and serene in its influence to its friend than any kingdom in history. We get a vision here of kingdoms and warriors, people going out and, and fighting, and domestication means to take us away from that sort of activity. So taming in the sense of it's not just about war, and before that he mentions money and conquest. It's a more spiritual 
kind of activity. So he starts this paragraph talking about men naturally seeking money and power. So I think when he says taming, when he's talking about domestication of the idea of culture, I think he's still on the same track of getting us away from money and power. That's what it means to domesticate mm-hmm. the idea of culture. Well, so this is a great transition to the second essay, Self-Reliance. You know, this is entirely the solution that he's talking about. He's given this, the problem with American scholars today is that they're too weak and ineffectual and they don't act enough and they don't really engage nature enough and they don't read creatively enough. They just parrot old things and what they do create is very derivative. So what we need are authentic individuals and that's all what the second essay is about. But is there anything from the end of this essay that you guys wanted to talk about before we got to that? The very end of the essay is the, you know, he starts out with the talk of the different eras, classic, romantic, and reflective, which he compares to boyhood, adolescence, and adulthood. And he calls the current age an age of introversion, critical, embarrassed with second thoughts, sort of like Hamlet. That's where he kind of gives the diagnosis of the American spirit, I think. The new importance given to the single person. I mean, he definitely sees America, right? America is, it's neat reading this thinking about how philosophy or, you know, intellectual or artistic creations work in formerly colonized cultures now that you can look in African or South American. Everything we have is from the Westerners and we need to revive, somehow get our own culture up and running and as respected as it should be. And to see that here about America at this point in time, you know, not that long ago. So here's a great classic quote we have listened too long to our courtly muses of europe the spirit of the american freeman is already suspected to be timid imitative tame public and private avarice make the air we breathe thick and fat the scholar is decent indolent complacent we see already the tragic consequence the mind of this country taught to aim at low objects eats upon itself (laughs) and then he goes on to recommend Well, he says things like the world is nothing, man is all, and you yourself, in yourself is the law of nature. Confidence in the unsearched might of man. Those are actually before the quote I just read. I think he goes on to recommend his series of inspirational CDs that you can get for $29.95 each every month. And I would buy them because he's a great writer. So if the single man plant himself indomitably on his instincts and there abide, the huge world will come around him. So this call to instinct, that's what one of the solutions to all this. Instinct, courage, things like, you know, again, stuff that Nietzsche is definitely influenced by. And then he ends saying something like the chief disgrace of the world, not to be individuals, basically to adhere to herd opinions. So again, a call for individuality. I mean, the general tenor of this essay is is against conformity, which we'll get more of in the, the next essay and or more individuality. And, okay, that's a good transition. Self-reliance. You gave the overview to the last one. I'll try to give the overview of this one. It elaborates the, the self-trust. He says, society everywhere is the conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. And virtue in most requests is conformity. So it's all just how to be your own person. And what does that mean? Well, for one thing, he actually says things against philanthropy, for instance. Pretty much if somebody else tries to draft you into their little cause, no, screw that. I need to do what my inner spirit tells me to, my character. I need to pay attention to my character and live in a creative way. You know, I could just pretty much say everything that's in Nietzsche's gay science, and this would apply here. 
One of the more famous quotes from here, a foolish consistency is, is the hobgoblin of little minds. One of the ways in which we conform is that people expect us to be a certain way based on what we did yesterday. And part of being true to yourself is being able to react to new insight that you get all the time and to not worry so much about what other people think of you. And so don't feel like you need to exhibit a consistent character in that surface level way. But then the next section, which we already talked about a little, is about really what character actually is. And he seems to have a fairly, you know, as much as he seems to be talking about exerting your will, he talks about characters as if they're pretty much determinate. Well, we're going to act kind of as we're going to act. And anyway, has some interesting things to say about the interaction of this deterministic view of human character and this individualism that he's recommending. And then he gives a series of four case studies. I don't even know. It's like there's no, <laughs> there's no introduction to why he suddenly starts numbering the sections toward know. the end. And he talks about prayer. He talks about conforming to a religious creed. He does say why. He says it's easy to see that a greater self-reliance must work a revolution in all the offices and relations of men, in their religion, in their education, in their pursuits, in their modes of living, their associations, in their property, in their speculative views. And he starts off with prayer. All right. Here's the examples. Yes. Prayer. Don't be an idiot and feel like you can gain wisdom by traveling. <laughs> then his ends in this whole strangely regressive kind of thing on society never advancing. Pretty much that truths are perennial. No progress. Where do you want to start in that mass? At the very beginning of the essay, it's about this relationship between being spontaneous and tapping into one's genius to believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. That is genius, which is an interesting... Trust so th yourself. This goes for the, towards the oneness thing again, but... And it's something that's kind of rare today. For obvious historical reasons, people are far more timid when they're writing about, you know, it's always culturally relative in some way, right? But for Emerson, he's advocating this, you know, to believe what is true for you is true for all men. That's a really interesting and bold claim. What you just said is interesting to me, Wes, because I find Emerson reacting to his time in pointing out great social forces trying to control people, be them governments or religion or scholars, all saying this is the way you ought to think a kind of democratic revolt against aristocracy of yeah authority of sorts of authority exactly and i did think that nowadays you just wouldn't see that or that kind of thrashing about wouldn't happen so much because people at some level they can sort of think whatever they want more or less there isn't the same kind of generic authority going on there you know there's some sort of cultural things but it's not quite the same and mm -hmm. as oppressive as emerson is reacting against it's not politically oppressive in a funny way people are actually more conforming even without having a external authority putting their thumb down on them either by the kind of knee-jerk relativism that you're talking about that you mentioned earlier or by just kind of a general timidness and lack of assertiveness and self-trust. So it ends up, rather than being a parroting of institutional authority, it ends up being a kind of wishy-washy parroting of the you know, most banal commonalities or truths or 
simplistic understandings, but again, still the same symptom of not trusting oneself and then also asserting oneself. So here's an example of this. I was helping someone with a master's thesis and it came back with comments, wanting footnotes for absurd things, almost every sentence. <laughs> like you can't say anything unless you have a source for it. Even, you know, the sky is blue. <laughs> So I had to help the student put in reference because some of them, these sentences were so general, you know, just put in a reference to Wikipedia or something. So it's that kind of absurd. There's a timidness at an academic level where everything must be footnoted, even very obvious things. There's always someone who said it before. So I must go back and find that person or the many people who said that. On and what grounds are you them. saying that? Yeah. It's an enormous waste of time. And also it's an enormous interference with people's joy and their spontaneous discovering things of things for themselves. And it's often unnecessary. I think Emerson is right. You appeal to those sources when it's really necessary, but otherwise you just do it. You pretend that there's nothing before you. And what you referred to is a kind of deeply passive aggressive authoritarianism. Right. I guess we could think about the Foucault episode here too, but in, instead of it being, it's like the panopticon effect, but instead of it being this top down, obvious, tyrannical authority that's preventing you from doing things and which actually often will increase the spontaneity of a population, right? Because they have something to resist. They have something to exactly. fight exactly. against. It's this much more subtle kind of thing where people are lured into this uh, complacency and timidity and all, and all those sorts of things. I regarded this essay before I started it as, oh, this will be a nice thing in terms of reading a foundational text for American thinking, but that this has been so thoroughly internalized in our culture now and our very, you know, that our culture actually respects and prizes individuality explicitly and in its artistic creations. As David Brin was telling us, everybody has to have a quirk. So at least there's some prima facie, you know, every kid knows, that, you know, get high on self-esteem and be true to yourself and all those things. So what I wanted then out of this was if I should be true to myself Tell me what the ontological foundation of by being oh true to myself God. is. <laughs> no. Yes, I was disappointed. And so I'm glad to hear this other perspective that you're saying that this actually still is a message that people need to hear and really internalize. Because even if you think you're, of course, I can think whatever I want and trust myself and that there are lots of ways that we still are being conformist that we might not even know about. Yeah. Ways that, are, that we're being timid. Yeah. Doing what you want to do is really hard, and it's really hard from a social and cultural perspective, and it's also hard even from an individual psychological perspective, getting yourself to do the things that you most want to do. And when I read Self-Reliance, it is that call to arms to me that he's talking about. And he talks much less about the cultivation of character to do this, but more of the virtue and necessity of self-reliance. And to the extent that he talks about that cultivation, he is really pointing to sort of the negative things like don't distract yourself with traveling. Realize that you don't have to go very far to be learning and be present with your life. So like someone like Thoreau took this to heart, like never going farther than 20 miles from home or something like that. Mm. So the first section after he lays this out was, is he gives us the example of young people, right? Boys, boys who are sure of a dinner and would disdain as much as a Lord to do or to say ought to conciliate one. That's the healthy attitude of human nature. 
A boy is in the parlor what the pit is in the playhouse, independent, irresponsible, looking out from his corner on such people, and never troubles himself about consequences or interests, gives an independent, genuine verdict. So he's using this image to tickle our fancy, that haven't we lost something in growing up and becoming more sensitive about what other people think about us? We should be more <laughs> rude and crude and... <laughs> At least in our minds. Well, and also go with our first thoughts. I mean, part of the, if you're mm -hmm. looking for an ontology here, right, which he isn't, he won't spell out exactly as an ontology, but it's that there's a natural truth in the individual and access to the world through authenticity. And in the section that you just quoted, Mark, you see this in children as being more authentic and more true to that spirit and manifest their self-trust and their intrinsic action. You know, that would be a piece of, maybe it's not quite ontology, but a piece of the ethic that's there. Yeah, it's a psychology. Yeah. The world is true, and you have a conduit directly to that truth. And the downfall for adults, and this is reminiscent of Rousseau, is basically becoming aware of, you know, Mark, as you said, what other people think of yes. you. And I love this quote, but the man is as it were, clapped into jail by his consciousness. As soon as he has once acted or spoken with éclat, is that how you pronounce that? Someone's going to call us out on this if we don't do it right. Uh, <laughs> éclat. Why do you care what other people think? <laughs> exactly. He's a committed person, watched by the sympathy or the hatred of hundreds, whose affections must now enter into his account. So you do something brilliant, you do something noticeable and people approve, and suddenly, you know, you're worried about maintaining their esteem and it warps your opinions to the point where it's not even just overt hypocrisy where you believe something, but you're saying something else to conform with society, but you even lose sight of what you really think. It's not even available to you, that sort of boyhood spirit of, look, the emperor has no clothes. You simply see the clothes. So I thought of John Lennon is a, a good example of a badass on this ethic that as the Beatles did all these revolutionary things and got everybody expecting great things. But then after that broke up, he just like, you know, I'll put out a solo album when I damn well please. And I'll hang around with my kid and I'll just, I'm going to do Yoko, what I want to do. Yoko Screw Ono. you and all your expectations. <laughs> I don't care if you guys like her. <laughs> Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> so yeah, I thought of Rousseau here because the sort of downfall or the more happy state of nature that he gives, the sort of innocent bliss there is this becoming aware of seeking out recognition from the other. That's where things go wrong. So this flows into a whole section on virtue, which sounds very Nietzschean. Men do what is called a good action as some piece of courage or charity much as they would pay a fine in expiation of daily non-appearance on parade. Their works are done as an apology or extenuation of their living in the world, as invalids and the insane pay a high board. Their virtues are penances. I do not wish to expiate, but to live. My life is for itself and not for a spectacle. There you go. That flows into a section that looks at not good and evil in themselves, but good and evil as social tools, right? That, for the most part, our interaction with the concept of virtue is... Other people expecting certain things of us and calling something a virtue or not a virtue. And given that society is a conspiracy of against the manhood of every one of its members, wouldn't you expect that most things that are called virtues are actually harmful to yourself or choking of the self in certain ways? And that having a conscience yeah. is exactly this consciousness crippling us in the way you were just 
talking about. It's bad conscience because it's really about guilt. And we see this yep. a lot today, I think. This is sort of the thing that gets me exercised and why I write some of those articles that I write. And this is the Nietzschean critique. People really misunderstand what morality is. They think it means being a masochist. They think it means putting on this hair shirt and talking about, aren't I terrible as a white person because of the predicament of black people in this country or something like that. And that type of masochism, I think, people are actually doing it because they're masochists and they get off on that. It's a display of virtuousness, but it has actually has nothing to do with morality. It's completely detached from a genuine, often, I'm not saying it's always, I mean, I'm saying that people obviously are also genuinely interested in justice but often they get off track on that sort of self-berating, guilty route. That's what I thought of when I read this section. I thought, and of course, I thought of Nietzsche as well, that that's not what morality is about. Morality is not about self-flagellation. It's not about masochism and self-hatred for the sake of atoning for your own wrongs or for the wrongs of your people or this or that. What he says here is suggestive, but it was so much better in it more elaborately laid out by Nietzsche that, that I, I find I don't have any particularly original thoughts to add here. Yeah. Other than, you know, I was really thinking through this essay that this is something that Ayn Rand actually read. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring up Ayn Rand, by the way. <laughs> well, you gotta. This is what we got criticized for when we did her thing was talking about how she wasn't systematic enough. And I was ready to do the same thing to Emerson. And you guys are all, oh, don't expect that. But the people that were defending Rand were saying, no, what's awesome about Rand is the stuff about human nature that you can see in this essay very clearly. You know, the sort of recommendations that you can see of the way that the artistic types in her novels assert their individuality and they don't give a damn what you think. And you can see how this would yeah. be an inspiration. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think you can see that. I think some people will be surprised by this in Emerson because it looks like he's, you know, he's railing on charity, right? He's railing on altruism. Yeah, philanthropy in particular. Well, he says, you know, if malice and vanity wear the code of a philanthropy, shall that pass? Right. So that's kind of the point yes, that you were exactly. making, that you can get sucked into these causes when actually you're really a bastard. Right. So if an angry bigot assumes this bountiful case of abolition and comes to me with his last news from Barbados, why should I not say to him, go love thy infant, love thy woodchopper, be good natured and modest, and then so on. And then thy love afar is spite at home. So we know these people who are altruists when it comes to social causes and general, you know, humanity in general, but... They don't treat people individually very well. I hadn't looked at Emerson's biography at this point, and I had to go look and what was his position on abolition exactly. It made me think, oh my God, that's pretty far out that he's saying that. And of course, he was for abolition. But it evolved over time. It he did. Yes. Yeah. Although I read even in his early journals, he was against slavery, you know, even as, a, as an adolescent. It's just it took him a while to speak out about it. He just didn't like it when it was right. trendy. And, but also, you know, he... <laughs> Like Nietzsche, he has a very sensitive hypocrisy detector. So he's, it's the right cause. That doesn't mean he's going to refrain from noticing and criticizing the the hypocritical psychology of the way many people get involved in, in those sorts of causes. So he says, the doctrine of hatred must be preached as the counteraction of the doctrine of love that pules and whines. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. I shun father and mother and wife and brother when my genius calls me. I would write on the lintels of the doorpost, whim. I hope that it's somewhat better than whim at last, but we cannot spend the day in explanation. Expect me not to show cause why I seek or why I exclude company. So already packed into here, we've got a bunch of different things. And 
the the whim thing really caught me because that's another thing that Ayn Rand really focuses on. Like, oh, you you had me, Emerson, but then you put in this goddamn. <laughs> ultimately your entire philosophy comes down to whim. Like I agree with your sentiment, but it is not grounded in the right way. So that her hatred of him is almost a, a brotherly, a sibling <laughs> rivalry among very similar humanistic views. One other thing, the difference with Ayn Rand though, is I think she was trying to be pretty systematic. She wasn't really writing an essay in this vein. Yes, no, I so understand. I, I understand. I think we were right to hold her to that standard. So right after I stopped then is where he talks against philanthropy directly. Then again, do not tell me as a good man did today of my obligation to put all poor men in good situations. Are they my poor? Yeah, wow. <laughs> Which is obviously invoking uh, the biblical, you know, am I my brother's keeper? I tell thee, thou foolish philanthropist, that I grudge the dollar, the dime, the cent I give to such men as do not belong to me and who, to whom I do not belong. There's a class of persons to whom by all spiritual affinity I am bought and sold. For them I will go to prison if need be. But your miscellaneous popular charities, the education at College of Fools, <laughs> the building of meeting houses to the vain end of which many now stand, alms to sots, and to the thousandfold relief societies, though I confess with shame I sometimes succumb and give the dollar, it is a wicked dollar, which by and by I shall have the manhood to withhold. Yeah. <laughs> okay. How many times have you gotten called on the phone by people asking for money? And feel the same way. <laughs> that is never why I'm pissed at the people who called me on the phone. <laughs> like, oh, okay. I mean, I guess there's certainly an element of, I don't know anything about your organization. Given that you spend money on phone solicitation people, I don't want to give to a charity that spends 20% of its budget on phone solicitation people. So fuck you. I mean, I get that kind of thing, but it's not that I think you're such busybodies and I don't know. I might think that the particular charity that they're asking about, you know, help the uh, the policeman's ball or whatever. You know, I get calls about something related to that. Now, there are things that I would rather give my money to, but it's I never have the quite the uh, Scrooge-like reaction that you find here. Certainly not feeling like, oh, I'm just too weak to withhold my money. <laughs> I guess I was thinking of the way in which a lot of that phone solicitation is designed to target your possibility of feeling guilty, right? And that, you know, you recognize mm -hmm. that people are in the story and that, that people are actually in these challenging circumstances and could well use the help. But at the same time, I feel like more than half the time, they're not the ones getting the money that I'm giving you. My reaction in those situations is very similar to my reaction to commercial solicitations. I just feel a sense of pressure. You know, I hate door-to-door -door people because I do feel like ugh, I don't want to be a bastard. I don't want to, I don't know. I just, it's much easier to hang up on somebody, of course. Most of us have this lingering, even if we do give, whether it's to homeless people or charities, we have a lingering doubt about the value of that. And I think it goes to, part of it is this doubt about the value of mere exchange or transfer. Like, you know, what does it mean really just to, transfer some resource. And it goes back, I think, to the previous essay. I mean, I think it's entirely analogous to the educational problem of education as transfer of information versus inspiration. So I get a lot of enjoyment from certain altruistic activities like teaching. I feel like I'm, you know, a person who's very often selfish and worried about myself. But when I'm in that mode, I definitely feel selfless. I definitely feel concerned about the other person. And 
you don't have that kind of relationship when you're just anonymously giving money and you have no idea whether it's going to be a benefit or how it's going to benefit or how it's going to change some person's life in the long term. You know, it's the whole give a man a fish versus teach him to fish principle. But that's a great analogy, Wes. You're pointing to the fact that it kills the generosity <laughs> and the sense of, you know, all that. I guess you put it as this altruistic sense that you're giving something to someone for nothing. And whereas when you're, at least for me, when I'm being solicited like this, I get in this kind of grumpy mood where <laughs> like, I want to see the numbers, just like in this education thing, like, well, how many of them graduate with degrees? What kind of jobs do they actually get? Right. You know, as, as the you measure of their education. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I, I find this kind of self-loathing yeah. for having been pushed into this exactly. position of, you're making me view that activity in the worst possible way by the mode in which you are engaging me on it, right? So, yeah, toward the end of the essay, he talks about sympathy. Oh, yeah. It sounds very much like Nietzsche, but actually, I think he says it better than Nietzsche does it here. Our sympathy is just as base. We come to them who weep foolishly and sit down and cry for company, instead of imparting to them truth and health in rough electric shocks, putting them once more in communication with their own reason. Yeah, so so Nietzsche would call this pity, right? I think we, yes. when we see the word sympathy, because I don't think Nietzsche was anti-empathy. He was anti-pity, and I think that's what Emerson is here. Pitting people is a sin. Isn't one of the factors of pity, though, that you are not actually sympathizing, that you are demeaning them in a certain exactly. way, that you are... you enjoying the pathos of... Whereas the sympathy is, is more just like, is don't let other people's depression suck you down. Right. In pity, you're actually unconsciously enjoying your superior position to the other person. So that's, yeah, that's just a more complicated thing that he's yeah. describing, whereas this... Yeah, okay, don't regret, don't feel guilt, and don't feel this kind of sympathy that drags you down. Like, that doesn't help the person. Well, he doesn't go into this. <laughs> I think a good counter argument could be made that it actually will help the person. Having them feel less alone will help to address their, put them in the mental space where they could self-heal better, perhaps, than your, who, who are you to impart them truth and health and rough electric shocks? Like, what epistemic position are you in regard to them that you could actually effectively do that in any given actual situation? He sounds like a terrible dad here. <laughs> Nietzsche talks about this, about pity, stripping others of their uniqueness, if you guys remember that from the gay science. Mm -hmm. And also, when we're in the pitying mode, it's a flight from the self. It's a way of avoiding ourselves, actually. Yep. Uh, so then proceeding through the essay, yeah, can, we, sure. can we move on or... All right, so we have the bad faith section that we already talked about, but let's talk, say a little more about that consistency section. So he has this section, the, the paragraph starts, life only avails not the having lived. Power ceases to be the instant of repose. It resides in the moment of transition from a past to a new state, in the shooting of the gulf, in the darting of an aim. This one fact the world hates, that the soul becomes, for that forever degrades the past, turns all riches to poverty, all reputation to a shame, confounds the saint with the rogue, shoves Jesus and Judas equally aside. Why mm. then do we prate of self-reliance? Inasmuch as the soul is present, there will be power, not confident, but agent. 
To talk of reliance is a poor external way of speaking. Speak rather of that which relies, because it works and is. This to me was like the clarification of the consistency business, that our souls are an act in progress, and it's becoming. We are not what we were before. And to make that even more clear, it's not that we ought to be self-reliant on what we are, but that we are something that relies on itself, that we are working and being and becoming. That was the closest thing that I saw to a kind of ontology of the self. You know, that all of this talk of work, were you reminded of being at work, being itself, this kind of, yes, because with the process absolutely. part of it and... Yes, because this isn't just about, philosophy. yeah, this isn't just Protestant work ethic. This is going to be our transition to circles okay. when we make it. This is a launching okay. off point. Is something about the telos. And telekia. Yes. Okay, but I'm just going to say this idea of work as a way of being fully actualized, I guess. And active. The being is in activity. Right. And it's, in this case, also a becoming. Right. Those two things might be a little bit different, that... Emerson is making clear that this becoming involves a transformation, which is a little bit different than the kind of fruition involved in being at work, staying itself, the kind of identity involved in that activity. In this section, at least, it seems to me that Emerson is pointing to an activity that allows of transformation, not just a kind of teleological fruition. There are other areas in these essays which also made me think of the symposium because he's he's talking about self-reliance and not relying on the on the love of others and it made me think yes. of this Socratic solution to love relations where it's yeah. it's not about finding your perfect half. Mm-hmm. It's about this productivity or this reproduction in the presence of beauty which is a kind of work which I thought of, you know, yes. when I mentioned sublimation, it's a kind of way of being active and and producing things. So yeah, I think there's a it's a very interesting insight this idea around work as a sort of solution rather than say being loved or something like that. Right. So you might think that this bad faith kind of talk is like Sartre's we shouldn't be made into things, we shouldn't be forced to act consistently as I'm just a lawyer and that's the way I act all the time and you can tell what I'm going to say even before I say it because I'm just a lawyer and that's what the way lawyers talk and that kind of stuff, which flows directly out of the alienation from the true man that we got in the American scholar. But then add back in the, what we were saying before about character from this essay. So he's a determinist, he's Nietzschean in this sense as well, that It's not that we shouldn't put ourselves in one of those roles because really we have to admit that we have complete free will. It's that, no, we have a telos, we have a principle of motion that that's really makes up our character. And we are fundamentally active and changing beings and being true to ourself means transcending these socially appointed roles and being true to that nature appointed role, not whatever the hell Sartre's alternative, <laughs> this absolute right. freedom. Right, exactly. Sartre warned us against character, right? And Emerson is more on the Nietzschean becoming what you are route. Yeah. Embracing character. How much of that becoming who we are is transformative versus endpointed isn't completely yes. clear. Right. 
Exactly like for Nietzsche. Right. Yeah. We talked about this for the gay science. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be endpointed and transformative, like, you know, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly kind of thing, right? That there is a becoming involved that has a being along the way, but turns on transformations. Mm-hmm. Emerson is clearly, to me, pointing towards this activity as admonishing people to not be so concerned with consistency, at the very least, that you can't know what you're becoming exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. That you can be true to that activity. And I think it's like a, a tenant of his ethic that it is therefore good and true and apt to be true to that activity. But you will transform and become what you are. And that will be not necessarily consistent with what you were before or what you thought you were before. So there's some wording near the end of this consistency section that led me to think he was trying to say something about epistemology, but he probably isn't any more than he was saying anything about ontology. Oh, he does say the the ever-blessed one. Is that what you're talking about? So the magnetism, which all original action exerts, is explained when we inquire the reason of self-trust. Who is the trustee? So in other words, he's going to say here, what really undergirds this whole self-trust? What is the aboriginal self on which a universal reliance may be grounded? What is the nature and power of that science-baffling star without parallax, without calculable elements, which shoots a ray of beauty even into trivial and impure actions if the least mark of independence appear? The inquiry leads us to that source, at once the essence of genius, of virtue, and of life, which we call spontaneity or instinct. We denote this primary wisdom as intuition, while all later teachings are tuitions. So here, it's spontaneity or instinct. That's pretty interesting, that instinct we think of as must dig the nest for my babies. <laughs> There's nothing that sounds spontaneous about that. That sounds programmed. But the whole picture of this, of acting according to your character, makes those actually the same thing. Right? Well, yeah, because there is... Instinct in general, you know, you can think of it just as general as libido or aggression, right? Or mm-hmm. you can think of what Freud thought of as derivatives or impulses. You know, I have a particular impulse to write something at this moment. And, you know, my character has a lot to do with that, right? My wanting to be a writer and my wanting to express my libido in this particular way, let's say. Yeah, we think of tapping into that as spontaneity. Some people have a lot of trouble tapping into that and they're completely arrested. They're completely blocked in their ability, say, to let go and write something, let's say, or doing some other artistic activity. But then taking the step after that, we denote this primary wisdom, right, the spontaneity or instinct, as intuition, and all later teachings are tuitions. In that deep force, the last fact behind which analysis cannot go, all things find their common origins. So we get the, yeah, you know, not just the oversoul, but like platonic forms or something like that. Well, I found this interesting because he's comparing intuitions or instincts to first principles, to axioms in a system. They're the thing beyond which analysis cannot go, and everything else is derived from them. That I thought was original. I hadn't thought of that or seen that. And then he even goes on, for the sense of being which in calm hours rises, we know not how in the soul is not diverse from things, from space, from light, from time, from man, but one with them, and proceeds obviously from the same source whence their life and being also proceed. That's the closest we get of the description of the, he, he gives us some more poetry here, but I don't think any additional insight, I feel like, into what this unity might be. Now that we've actually gotten to the place here where he talks about the oversoul, I feel like we already covered it sufficiently earlier. Well, I thought you were going to get into the ever-blessed one. 
Isn't that in this essay? Where, where is that down? Is that? Yeah, it is in this essay. It's just after uh, what I read. It's the next paragraph. Yeah. This is the ultimate fact, which we so quickly reach on this, as on mm. every topic, the resolution of yes. all into the ever-blessed one. <laughs> Self-existence is the attribute of the supreme cause, and it constitutes the measure of good by the degree in which it enters into all lower forms. All things real are so by so much virtue as they contain. Yeah. Again, this concept of actualization and virtue, virtue being a kind of action and uh, work and actualization. So your realness is uh, only in proportion to how much of that you exhibit. So, I mean, is it even worth trying to look into more carefully into that wording? Self-existence is the attribute of the supreme cause, constitutes a measure of good by the degree in which it enters into all lower forms. But we're talking about self-existence being something that's, if we're thinking of ontology, not dependent for its existence on other things. And the good of things, you know, it's a kind of classical idea. The good of things is derived from their relationship to the ultimate cause. It confers it to them through that relation. To whatever extent they partake of, you know, so existence and reality comes in degrees. You can be actualized to one degree or another, and the, the highest degree, of course, is completely exhibiting your virtues, whatever being you are. And to the extent which you do that is you, the extent to which you are taking some activity that's borrowed from this first cause, the supreme cause. Well, it seems like there's a conflict there between being one with God and being one with other things because we all have a common source, which is God, a common first cause in which we partake in certain ways. But I think he's just parroting, you know, we'll just do a Plotinus episode later and we can think about this in a serious way instead of even yeah. really trying to t pick apart his words here. Cause it's yeah, what I it. thought was more interesting was the end of that paragraph where he says, power is in nature the essential measure of right. This is a very Thrasymachian view. I mean, of course, it's uncontroversial to say that of nature. The question is whether or not it ought to be that way with human beings. Might makes right. And of course, generally, we don't think so. But so he seems to be sort of endorsing that to some extent here. Nature suffers nothing to remain in her kingdoms which cannot help itself. Speaking of Ayn Rand, the genesis and maturation of a planet, its poise in orbit, the bended tree recovering itself from the strong wind, the vital resources of every animal and vegetable are demonstrations of the self-sufficing and therefore self-relying soul. So we get a very radical sense of the extent to which things should be self-helping, self-sufficient, not need anything outside of themselves, except, I suppose, the supreme cause. Well, it's that conflict there that we are each supposed to be independent because we're supposed to kind of act on our own telos, our own becoming. But the nature of telos is that it is at least type identical to the telos of everything else that not only do we have a common human nature, but just the patterns of desire and then going after what you desire, you know, that's common to all animals. So we could just go on talking about telos in all of its manifestations throughout the different layers of nature. And because we have that in common with them, we can say I'm self-sufficient insofar as I, recognize my oneness with everything, right? <laughs> so far as I recognize that I'm not a cog in a machine, but that I'm in a collection of independent entities with a common manufacturer. Right. Does that sound right? Yeah. But now we are a mob. Right. Man does not stand in awe of man, nor is his genius admonished to stay at home to put itself in communication with the internal ocean, but it goes abroad <laughs> to beg a cup of water from the urns of other men. 
So there's a lot of great language in here, but it is, you know, this is not giving us, I think, any different ideas than we've already discussed. So if we were really to believe that individuals need to be grown, then that emphasis on self-reliance would work a revolution in all the offices and relations of men, in their religion, their education, their pursuits, their modes of living, their associations, their property, and their speculative views. And then we get that list of four things that I outlined at the beginning. So for instance, prayer, the first one, it should not be grubbing for things. It is the contemplation of life from the highest point of view. Uh, it is the soliloquy of a beholding and jubilant soul. It is the spirit of God pronouncing his works good. Right. So when you pray, if you're praying for some private end for a Barbie doll for Christmas, I don't know why that popped in my head. <laughs> That's what he calls vicious prayers. The only way to pray is to pray for good in general. So anything less than all good is vicious. You have to pray for non-private ends. Not out of a sense of selflessness, but out of a sense of independence. Like, you know, you don't need that crap. You don't need that freaking Barbie doll. And then he talks about prayers as action, like the farmer weeding the field. And Yes, yes, there you go. Stuff that we really associate with Emerson and transcendentalism. Uh, and then number two, you talked about traveling. Don't bother. Without going out of your door, you can know the ways of heaven. That's a Hindu thing. or It's from a George Harrison song uh-huh. that a Swami taught him. So the wise man stays at home unless duty calls. So if you you got to study right. or do something abroad, that's great. But if you're just going to be a tourist, then he says something like you're growing old among old things. So I think they're, you know, it's cantankerous, but he is capturing, I think, something of what we've all experienced of the banality of being a tourist, right? And not really being connected, you know, as much as we fantasized or, or we would like to the place that we're we're visiting. Because we're not working. Right. We're not, there's, there's nothing vital that we're, we're doing there. Anyway, as a tourist. Yep. So number three, but the rage of traveling is a symptom of a deeper unsoundness affecting the whole intellectual action. The intellect is a vagabond and our system of education fosters restlessness. Web surfing. Yes. Well, I was going to make it all about us again and say our need to read all these different (laughs) philosophers and check off the boxes. Like, that's just crazy. That's that's intellectual (laughs) vagabondery. Vagabondery. (laughs) But I like web searching better. And then number four, as our religion, our education, our art look abroad, so does our spirit of society. All men plume themselves on the improvement of society, and no man improves. So here, society never advances. It recedes as fast on one side as it gains on the other. And then talks about the civilized man has built a coach, but has lost the use of his feet. That's a whole tirade of anti-technology here. As we acquire new arts, we lose old instincts. So it's an old question of what happens as we... So, yeah. for instance, for technology, it's great. It improves our lives, but there are always these costs. So he sees it. There's an economy to this, and then one side always balances out the other. And that's why there's no progress in this absolute sense. Yeah, of course, there's material progress and things like that. All right. So can we use that as the transition to talk about circles for at least five yeah. minutes before we stop here? So circles sure makes it sound like there's progress all over the place. It's all about progress. Not necessarily material progress. The eye is the first circle. The horizon which it forms is the second. And throughout nature, this primary figure is repeated without end. Skipping down, there are no fixtures in nature. The universe is fluid and volatile. Permanence is but a word of degrees. Our globe seen by God is a transparent law, not a mass of facts. The law dissolves the facts and holds it fluid. Our culture is the predominance of an idea which draws after it. This train of cities and institutions. Let us rise into another idea. They will disappear. 
the Greek sculpture is all melted away. And then just talks about how everything is ephemeral. So that's how this starts. Yes, there is. Well, maybe it's not progress, but there's movement. Well, then we move on to this idea that everyone obeys some classificatory idea, but it can be that can be supplanted by a more encompassing idea, a wider circle. So this is one of the reasons he chooses this metaphor, this idea of these ever increasing circles that contain each other. On the other hand, each circle has its own inertia. It solidifies and hems in life. So you get the idea that it's a kind of wall. So it's a cool metaphor in that sense, right? It performs both of those functions of telling us about inertia and solidity, but also the increasing circles. And he talks about the quick soul breaking through the circle, expanding into a greater orbit. The heart refuses to be imprisoned. Again, this is precisely where I thought of Nietzsche's truth and lie because of the conceptual scaffolding that our instinctual or metaphorical drive, Dionysian, whatever you want to call it, has to break through. So the heart refuses to be imprisoned and so on and so forth. To me, the progress of the circles and the going from one boundary to a new boundary struck me as deeply pragmatic, a kind of fundamental pragmatism, but motivated by this energizing spirit. Towards the end, he says, nothing is secure but life transition the energizing spirit. So there is this kind of constancy, which is sort of mere action, but the structures that you have you're constantly breaking through them and making new ones. And then the progression in morals, really, which sounds very much like Nietzsche's, you know, create your own morals, but this must have some implication beyond just the individual. This is kind of getting at the ideas themselves. This is why I said this is a phenomenological account of the dialectic, right, of the progression of ideas to better and better ideas and moving way past the midpoint of this essay. One man's justice is another's injustice. One man's beauty, another's ugliness. One man's wisdom, another's folly, as one beholds the same object from a higher point, right? So he definitely thinks that there's lower and higher here. There's progression, which has to do a lot with getting in touch with your true self and the one and all this stuff. But the dynamic of that is not a static mysticism, that once you gain the enlightened view of the self, then you've got it all figured out. You're a swami, you're a guru, and you know what to do for the rest of your life. That's not the way yeah. it works. The whole thing is dynamic. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you can call it progressive, but it's amazing his relationship to antiquity or to everything that comes before. It's very blasé. Like you can cast it off old knowledge in a new moment as vacant and vain. So it seems like we're always abandoning, you know, on his view, we can abandon what comes before. And we're, you know, very quickly, once we're in the new circle, it's going to have to be transcended once again. It's going to have to be broken through. So is it progress or is it just a cycle? Is it just repetition? Well, the idea of circles where a new, the new vision is that you've reached a wider circle. You've broken out. Right. Like, it's not that I'm throwing away the antiquity. But it doesn't end and it doesn't. We know we're in a superior position in the sense that the old one was sedimented and had to be gotten rid of, but is it really form this ever? I don't know. I mean, yes, on the surface of it, it seems like with each widening circle, we're making progress, but in a way, we're in the same place and we have to keep moving to stay actualized. I was trying to find a particular quote that when we sort of move to the next level, that we we have all the old stuff in mind, but it's cast in a new light. And that's what I think is oh, essential about this circle's metaphor, that it's not just we're moving to a different thing, is that we're moving to a higher view that includes the old stuff, but 
now with our mature new way of seeing things, then we've transcended it. That that's his substitution for the dialectic or his simplified picture of the dialectic. He uses an example of exactly what you're saying, Mark, in mm-hmm. literature. He says, literature is a point outside our hodiernal circle through which a new yeah, one may too. be described. I had to look up hodiernal, which means our present day. So the use of literature is to afford us a platform whence we may command a view of our present life, a purchase by which we may move it. So that sounds to me similar mm-hmm. to what you're talking about, that part of these circles is to get outside and then look onto ourselves. And we can do that from within a circle. By definition, we're inhabiting multiple circles at once. But I think you're right, Wes, that there's a, an ambiguity in here. So he says, there's no virtue which mm-hmm. is final. All are initial, right? So the self-overcoming, I mean, that you could take that as... Well, you know, our ethics over time is progressive. We learn more and more as a species, as a culture. And so what we considered virtuous in the past gets overcome by a more sophisticated view. And in that sense, all virtues are only initial, that they only await our as individuals or as a society coming to a higher point of view of truth to cast them away. But then this question that's been lurking here for anybody that has been you know, thinking of Emerson as a subjectivist or – and thus, O circular philosopher, I hear some reader exclaim, you have arrived at a fine Pyrrhonism, Pyrrho the skeptic, at an equivalence, an indifferency of all actions, and would fain teach us that if we are true, forsooth, our crimes may be lively stones out of which we shall construct the temple of the true God. So it does sound like, you know, there's no real good and evil. It's all just kind of – what the geist at the time decides, and that's going to be overcome, then can't you justify anything out of that? Likewise, if we're looking back at self-reliance, if you're just paying attention to your true self and saying, I know you don't understand it. You can call it whim for all I care. I hope it doesn't end up being just whim. You know, I hope there's some logic to it or my telos has something sensible and heroic about it, but I just got to go with my gut here. It sounds like a subjectivism. It sounds like... You could have a discussion about wouldn't great criminals have that same sense of self-assurity? And we already had that kind of discussion when we talked about Nietzsche in this respect. But anyway, Emerson's response to this is right after that is that point that we made near the beginning. He says, I'm careful not to justify myself. I own I'm gladdened by seeking the predominance of the saccharine principle throughout vegetable nature and not less by beholding in morals that unrestrained inundation. You know, this is not a good quote. What the hell does that mean? He's gladdened by seeing the saccharine principle, something sweet and altruistic or something. um, He's saying, I like to think that nature is not just indifferent and meaningless and all sound and fury. So, and not less by beholding in morals that unrestrained inundation of the principle of good into every chink and hole that selfishness has left open. Yea, into the selfishness and sin itself, so that no evil is pure, nor hell without its extreme satisfaction. So even in life's struggle for existence and all the terrible things that happen in the natural world, it's never purely that. There's some way for good to enter into those things. I don't know. I honestly don't know. (laughs) But lest I should mislead any when I have my own head and obey my whims, let me remind the reader that I'm only an experimenter. Do not set the least value on what I do, or the least discredit on what I do not as if I pretended to settle anything as true or false. I unsettle all things. No facts to me are sacred. None are profane. I simply experiment, an endless seeker with no past at my back. So (laughs) ultimately, it looks like this progression is progressive. (laughs) It looks like the circles are ever-increasing wisdom. But eh, what do I know? I'm just trying stuff. Yep. 
I don't know. That sounds way too modest compared to the rest of his account here. That you can gaze within yourself and see the oversoul and intuition will reveal certain truth to you mm. and etc. Yeah. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> I mean, it does remind me again of Nietzsche's living dangerously and where danger is, it's about being able to think even taboo thoughts, not letting your mind be hemmed in by even what seem to be the most obvious morals of the day, willing to think awful things, at least experimentally, at least to ask those questions. Yes. And, and you may confirm that the things that you thought were sacred and right are sacred and right, but you have to be willing to question them. And that is something that is actually quite rare in people. Most people are proceeding from very, very strong moral intuitions that they're unwilling to question. So the very last paragraph, the one thing which we seek with insatiable desire is to forget ourselves, to be surprised out of our own propriety, to lose our own sempiternal memory and to do something without knowing how or why, in short, to draw a new circle. So maybe it's a matter of it's the process that the good life here, you know, the life of the self-conscious human being of the true man is constant growth, right? That that's what the telos commands is self-overcoming. Mm. And there's always going to be something a little bit weird about talking about I'm self-overcoming according to the law <laughs> of my telos, but that's inherent in yeah. Nietzsche's formulation as well. Yeah. Becoming what you are, but <laughs> overcoming what you are. <laughs> Nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm, he says. So at least we try to feel good about stuff, feel powerful, do great things. Yeah, and ultimately be willing to change, be willing to embrace the becoming, to transform ourselves. Because I think life often becomes inertial, right. it becomes static. Things don't change, and that is when we sort of start to wilt. We become less real under this formulation. Yeah, and if you're going to say, well, wouldn't Hitler think he's pretty great according well, to his, you know, a legitimate question. return self, self-reliance on that. But do you think that somebody evil in that way is going to be self-overcoming and self-questioning in the way that he recommends here? That seems to be his solution. We had this discussion with Nietzsche, but whenever you talk about character, instead of talking about a human nature, talking about my particular nature, you know, and if I'm the my nature is to be a psychopath or a serial killer, and that's what would fulfill me and actualize me, then it becomes a, it, you know, I think it's a real problem in these sorts of virtue ethics formulations. But. You got a closing on this uh, essay or Emerson overall, Dylan? I liked it more than I expected to, spending some time with it. I did find that I like reading a lot of 19th century stuff. There's a way of speaking and writing that you kind of have to get in the mode of. But once you do, it's pleasurable and worth reading. I thought the three essays we ended up with were a pretty mm -hmm. good selection and readable. Yeah. And I found it invigorating in a way that I was prepared to not be. Maybe I was poisoned <laughs> by Mark. Yeah, I noticed you guys were getting down on it. it. The vigorousness of his spirit and the notion of self-reliance. I just really love, and it's one of the things I love about Nietzsche, and I, I really liked here. And I've never really had too much problem with the inconsistency part. I'm relatively content with it. It's one of those calls of uh, intellectual and spiritual virtue that more often bears repeating and underlining because it's so seldomly attained. It's so hard to attain often. It's well worth reminding oneself of. Whatever I read before this, I read in high school. 
and I had my transcendentalist associations and to thine own self be true and that sort of thing. A lot of things are surprising. Like, so for instance, the affinity with Nietzsche and especially the elitism, which is something as with Nietzsche will make a lot of listeners and readers probably uncomfortable. Although this is probably a more democratic <laughs> elitism than Nietzsche, right? Because it's genius is really yeah. there in everyone and it's a matter of undoing the barriers to yes. it. I think that's yeah. that's a huge difference. I don't yeah. I don't think there will be offensive right. in the same way at so, all. So, and I always saw the elitism in Nietzsche as the weakest part because it's like here's my critique of morality and yes, <laughs> everyone is a fucking hypocrite, but then what do you replace it with? The Ubermensch? No. It doesn't there's no solid solution with Nietzsche, but I think Emerson has helped me see that the elitism at least if you reformulate there is a place for it this more democratic sort of elitism it's an important component of all this this sort of striving for something higher as being a key component of people's happiness because i think that's what ultimately we're we're talking about here and the language i just really enjoy the flowery language so you know that part of it i i had my general associations about emerson but i really didn't know emerson i enjoyed it a lot well, I think we've set people's expectations appropriately here. I'm, so they will be in a better position than I was when I started this. I had read Emerson long ago, and I remembered him not being very helpful in terms of getting at the real philosophical concepts that would have to underlie some of the stuff. And so a lot of this, you know, it makes me want to read. I'll open an invitation right now. If we have a listener who has more educated than we are, in other words, educated at all, has an interest in Brahmanism, right? In old-time Hindu philosophy, I'd love to do an actual episode and reading on the ontology of the one. <laughs> and I know we can also do that with Plotinus and there are Parmenides and there are some other ways of getting at that. But I think without having the Eastern angle, you can't really get at where Emerson is coming from and where... Emerson is the father of not only, I don't know, if the Unitarians and things now, but so much of the language in here is like every piece of New Age schlock you've ever heard is like directly ripping off Right, and he Emerson. was reading a lot of uh, and, uh, Eastern philosophy. So, yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's the commonality. I was surprised how much this had in common with Schopenhauer, not only in the recommendations for how to live, but just in what I saw as the references to underlying ontological issues, you know, however different he may have been in other ways in terms of not giving any precise account of this in the way Schopenhauer does. But regardless of all that, you know, if I had come into this with the idea of relishing the different passages and the way that he brings in all these different images and sentence by sentence adds extra frosting <laughs> to <laughs> elaborating. I think many of the quotes we've read already get that across plenty good. Like you could have said that same thing with all the informational content in a quarter of the length, but it wouldn't have been as fun, I guess. So if you're in that mood, I can see why somebody would be very inspired and excited by this. Personally, I didn't feel like I could do much with the ideas in here. I felt that either it had already been covered by things that we'd read and talked about recently, or that I just wasn't that particularly impressed. This is cool to read. This is like a cool song lyrics, but that ultimately is not going to affect my philosophical outlook one iota. So, 
Mark, you're, you're like the Borg. You're just going through space <laughs> collecting <laughs> <laughs> the relevant information until we get the, the system. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you really have to take seriously the idea that people might not have the same <laughs> pathway through their life as you, Mark. Perhaps not, but... And also, you know what? You can just enjoy your plain brown toast <laughs> if you want to. Let's do another episode of Elizabeth Anscombe. <laughs> I just want the toast to be nutritious. Yeah, you you, you can enjoy your plain brown whole You're grain You're like the pastry toast. maker, man. You, you sophists. <laughs> He's definitely a sophist. Give me cake, buddy. Well, for next time, you won't get cake exactly, but you'll get Henry David Thoreau, Walden. So we're going to more or less continue this conversation. We're supported by your donations. Go to partiallyexaminedlife.com to make a contribution. Big donors since last time have included Tobalewa Oni, Jeff Jeffers, John Breckenridge, Harry Lovestrom, Cheryl Swain, Timothy Adamson, Jordan Batchelor, Lisa Sanchez, William Mascioli, Tyler Andreessen, Jacob Rosen, Stephen Gelber, Joel Carter, Kenneth Stewart, Michael Rosati, Matthew Tangue Carell, Alexander West, Bjorn Dalby, Tommy Bishop, Brandon Gardner, Casimir King, this is the first half, Rebecca Ott, Jeffrey Williams, Graham Wright, Dean Vanier, Thomas Knight, John Redford, Rohanna Oberai, David Kirk Barton, Rosa Lopez, Fred Bowe, Eric Hernar, Diana Sabo, Daniel Lilly, Amber Trotter, Christopher Erickson, Steve Juris, Yannick Kilberger, Malcolm Hansen, Stephanie Jones, James Blix, Jared Long, Casper Fairhall, Emily Fernandez, Daniel Nellor, and wow. Michael Hess. Thanks also to the smaller donors, including those who are newly or on a continued basis signed up for our $5 a month citizen site. Go check out our Twitter feed and our Facebook page and our blog and order stuff from us with Amazon. I want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy and fast to create your own professional website for free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com. Enter offer code EXAMINED at checkout. Thanks and good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Idiot, listen, the time is at hand. The power is upon you now. Idiot, listen, and rise where you stand. The hour is at hand for you now. Idiot, asking for more than you know. You got more than you know. You know how. Idiot wishing you've got what you plan What more could you stand, you dumb cow? You've got it all, you know Just take it, dude, and go Like the whole shebang Idiot, listen, the time is at hand The power is upon you now Listen and rise where you stand The hour is at hand for you right now Cherish the love, you fool Take a seat back and drool Rock the whole shebang Caring for you and on I Idiot watching 
as she is untrue Rejoice as you do and don't lie Idiot asking for more than you know You got more than you know, you know now Idiot waiting, assessing on you Transcend, pass on through, you know Take it through and go Rock the whole casbah